Wax on, wax off. Oh, 1980s was that version of the movie. They did a remake in the 2000s, but I'm still partial to the 1980s one. I think there's something just about that that story and the characters in it. But one of the reasons we just kind of wanted to, to show you that was just as we're talking about the vision and values, and we're talking about some of the values, the value that we're focusing on today is the value of radical obedience. Radical obedience. And if you, you remember that, that movie, if you've seen it, uh, in one version or the other, uh, that he goes on to not only have him uh, wax on, wax off, but he has him painting the fence. And there's a certain way he wants him to paint the fence. And then he has to sand the floor. And, and, and eventually, uh, the young man, he just gets, he gets ticked off. He's like, you know, you're just using me as a slave. And this doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, I'm supposed to be learning karate. And all I'm learning how to do is, is clean all your stuff and straighten out your house. And on and on and on it goes until eventually he stops and shows him what he has actually been learning along the way about karate, even though he hadn't thrown the first punch or learned the first kick along the way. And as I've thought about that through the years, I thought, you know, that's, that's how it works with us and God so often, isn't it? That often when God comes to us, when we encounter a command of God in Scripture, we, we, we look at that and there's just a part of us that says, this doesn't make sense. That we rebel against that. We push back against that. We don't see how God's going to make anything good out of it along the way. And so we struggle. We struggle because God's asking us to do something that doesn't make sense to us. We don't understand why God is asking us to do this now or do this in this way. And, and maybe there's a part of our flesh or even uh, some of the people around us who say, you know, why are you doing that? Don't go that way. That doesn't make sense. And we can find all sorts of reasons and rationalizations and justifications for not obeying God. That honestly is cultural Christianity. That honestly is, is kind of the, the consumer Christianity that is more and more permeating our culture. The truth is we're going to come to those moments that it doesn't make sense to us. And in those moments, we're going to have to decide, am I going to do it my way or God's way? Are we going to walk our way or are we going to walk God's way? Am I going to do what makes sense to me in the moment or what God has clearly commanded? And in those junctures become kind of the trajectory of our life gets set. The Bible does not know any kind of faith that is not intricately linked to obedience. We sometimes try to separate them. Well, I have faith, and then I'll kind of engage in selective obedience as it makes sense to me. That's not scriptural. Scripture links faith and obedience. What I believe is always ultimately revealed by my behavior, by the choices that I make along the way. And so as we wanted to kind of lift up this value of obedience, radical obedience, and kind of, again, chose that terminology because obedience should be enough in itself, but we've kind of so watered down the word that it doesn't have kind of the meaning that I think the Bible has to it. What I wanted us to do in, in, in lifting up that value of radical obedience is look at, at an Old Testament story. 
It's an Old Testament story that I think perfectly illustrates the struggle that sometimes we have of God asking us to do something that may not make sense to us, and it teaches us some valuable, valuable lessons in obedience. So I'm going to encourage you to find 2 Kings, the Old Testament book of 2 Kings chapter 5, and we want to kind of just kind of walk through this together. But as you're finding that, let me just give you a, a quick a bit of background. The first verse introduces a guy by the name of Naaman to it. He was the commander of the army of the king of Syria, who was a great man, a uh, high favor, uh, a mighty man of valor, great, led lots of great victories. And so, so th- this, this is a guy who's used to getting things done. This is a guy who has been a high achiever. This is a man of, of, of high character and uh, a lot of things to commend, uh, commend this guy to us. He is Syrian, and Syria actually finds themselves in opposition to the Hebrew people and at times even, even raiding the Hebrew people and, and and in battles with them along the way. All the great qualities of Naaman, there's one thing that's just this burden for him, and that he has the disease of leprosy. And it is a disease, certainly there's the physical aspects of that, but there's also kind of the social uh, ramifications of that. It just kind of keeps you distanced from people along the way. And so this is just this burden, and, and, and the king of Syria thinks so highly of him, and, and that, that along the way he hears, uh, Naaman hears from a Hebrew servant girl who was probably taken captive, by the way, in one of these raids, and, and she speaks about a prophet in Israel, a prophet named Elisha, who has had a God-given capacity to heal. And, and so the king hears about this, and so he loads him up with, with uh, uh, like uh, pounds and pounds of pounds of, I think, 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, 10 brand new sets of clothing, all to kind of take these gifts to make this thing happen. And he, and he shows up to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel is at this point thinking, this is a trap. He knows, I can't heal this guy. He sent him with all this stuff, and I'm not going to be able to heal him, and that's going to be his excuse to invade. That's going to be his excuse to attack us all over again. And so he's tearing his garments, and all of these things are going on, and that kind of sets the stage for these lessons in obedience. And the first lesson is simply this. Our problems are often God's opportunities. Our problems are very, very often God's opportunities. If you're there at 2 Kings 5, verse 8 says, But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Israel. What appeared to be this huge problem to Naaman, what appeared to be this huge problem to the king of Israel was actually a God-given opportunity. It was an opportunity to see God at work in a brand new way, to see God do what only God can do. Every problem that we encounter is an opportunity to prove God's power. Now, very often we look at the problem and we just focus on the problem. We focus on the pain and the frustration and, and we can't fix it in, in two minutes. And so we, we get highly frustrated and all that along the way. But in the midst of that, obedience learns to say, God, in the middle of this problem, there's an opportunity. 
God, in the middle of this challenge, there is something that you want to do. There's something that you want to display about yourself. And one of the first lessons in obedience is a problem may be the platform that God wants to use to display his power. But it's going to depend, as we'll see in just a few moments, upon our response, our obedience or lack of obedience along the way. You know, problems have a way of kind of refining us and focusing us, don't they? And sometimes we get so busy with so many things, and boy, you get a huge problem dropped into your life, and all of a sudden your priorities change. All of a sudden there were some things that were important that aren't that important anymore. All of a sudden you may find yourself more open to God than you have been in a long, long time. That's the power of problems in our lives. Problems are often God's opportunities. The second obedience lesson is that obedience may require something that seems unreasonable or impractical. That it may seem to us to be highly unreasonable or impractical, and that's exactly what Naaman encounters. Follow again with me in verse 9, if you would. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place to cure the leper. And are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Can you identify He's come all this way. He's come with all the, the, the impressiveness of the chariots and horses and power. He's come with, with loads of resources along the way. He's come to get things done in the way that he knows to get things done. And Elisha doesn't even come out to say, hi, how are you? He sends a messenger and says, go dip seven times in the river. What? What? That's, that's what you want me to do? That's the message from God to me? That's what God would have me to do? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, we got better rivers back home. I mean, th- this doesn't make any sense at all to me. I mean, by the way, if you could cure leprosy by dipping in the river, then why aren't all the lepers in Israel swimming around in the river, right? I mean, this doesn't make any sense. Ever had those conversations with God? With yourself? With somebody else? This doesn't make sense. It is unreasonable. It's impractical. God's way of handling this situation doesn't make sense. God's way of handling money, the math doesn't add up to me. God, it just doesn't make sense. And yet what you find in Scripture is that over and over and over again, God asks us to do things that at the first glance seem unreasonable or impractical, right? Just a, just a few examples. Remember Noah and the ark, right? How about that one, right? How, how would you like that assignment, okay? I want you to build like this humongous boat. I've never seen one of those before. And because it's going to come and there's going to come a flood and rain and I've never seen anything like that before, right? And 
this is going to be such a project. This is not like a weekend fixer-upper, right? I mean, this is, this is like, like weeks and months and years. I mean, this is going to take a long time. And, oh, can you, honey, guess what we get to do, right? Can you imagine coming home to explain that one? The neighbors and everybody else doesn't make sense unless you know what God's getting ready to do. How about Joshua? Hey, Joshua, you are now the leader. You've taken over for Moses. And as we cross into the promised land, okay, we got this this hugely fortified city. All right, buddy, man, great leader. What's the plan? We're going to like march around one day and then we're going to march around twice the next day. And, and we're going to kind of keep doing that. But here, here, it's, it gets really cool. On the seventh day, we're not only going to march, but we're going to blow a trumpet and shout. I mean, how about that, guys? Huh? All in. Here we go. That doesn't make sense. That's impractical. Nobody has ever fought a battle like that before. No, no, nobody's seen walls come down like that before. Peter, you just saw a video of stormy waters. Yeah, come on out. Just go ahead. Throw your leg over the side and come on, walk out here, Peter. Oh, yeah, it happens all the time. I mean, I've been a fisherman my whole life. I've never walked on water, right? Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. Philip in Acts 8, this revival's breaking out. God's Spirit prompts him, leave what's going on here, leave all these people, all this activity, and go stand out on a desert road. That doesn't make sense. My time would be much better spent here. I mean, I could do this, and I'm having this impact, and go stand out on a desert road. And what he didn't know is that God was going to send a chariot by at just that time. <laughs> it had an Ethiopian in it who God was working in his life and heart, and that Ethiopian would take the gospel with him back to his home. Sometimes God asks us to do things that don't make sense. In fact, is there are some of you in this room right now that God is speaking to you. And maybe he's been speaking for a long time. And maybe it's a clear command in Scripture. And you have just been wrestling at it and you've gotten frustrated. And maybe you're like, maybe you're even angry and you said, no way, I'm not going to do that. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't see how it's going to work out. You felt the prompting of God's Spirit to step out in a direction, and that, and that prompting continues to be consistent. And yet you say, it just doesn't make sense to me. Obedience may require something that seems unreasonable. Or impractical. And the third lesson is that failure to obey may cost us what we most desire. Failure to obey may cost us what we most desire. If, if you didn't read any further, you would basically think Naaman said no. He walks away in anger. He probably grumbled all the way back to Syria might have been plotting how he's going to bring his army back and just wipe out this place in his anger. But he wouldn't be cured of his leprosy. He wouldn't have that which he most desired. See, sometimes we miss out on God's best, not because God's not willing. It's because we haven't opened the door. 
We haven't taken that step of obedience. We haven't said, God, I don't understand it. I can't quite think it all through. I don't see how all the steps are going to unfold. But this is the step you've called me to take, and I'm going to take it. Jesus talked about what happens when we hear and don't obey. And everyone who hears these words of mine, Jesus taught, and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and the beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it this dream and this hope of this home I'm going to establish and all that's going to take place in that home and yet the reality of life crashes against it the inevitable storms come and because it was built on shifting sand because it was built on disobedience it did not stand it may have looked impressive it may have been shiny but when the storms came it collapsed because failure to obey may cost us what we most desire it's not enough just to hear it's not enough just to read it's not enough just to sense that prompting of God's spirit and even tell somebody about it it becomes that moment where it's not even about praying about it anymore and you know we've lifted up the value of faith-filled prayer but it becomes that point where it's got to say yes God yes I will obey and the failure to obey may cost us what we most desire. What a tragedy it would have been for Naaman to have been that close, that close to getting what he desired, what God wanted to bless him with, and fail to get it because he wouldn't take a step into the river. Some of you may be that close, that close to experiencing God's best in some area of your life. But the failure to obey may cost you what you most desire. The fourth lesson in obedience is the power of good counsel. Good counsel encourages obedience. Good counsel encourages obedience. So here he is filled with anger, filled with rage, walking away, probably plotting his revenge and all the frustration. Verse 13, but his servants came near and said to him, my father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? This is powerful. Here are these servants. It probably would have been more culturally appropriate to just shut up. But they take a chance. And I think in some sense it probably speaks to the character of Naaman that they thought enough of him to do that. They speak the truth to power. Is it Naaman? I mean, listen, if he asked you to do some great thing, some some Herculean task, you would have done it. He's just asking for a simple step of obedient faith. Go dip yourself seven times in the river. Why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you take a chance that maybe, just maybe, that's what God wants to use? Sometimes we need people around us who will help us to believe. 
who will help us to trust when our trust tank is low, who will help us to step out in obedience when we're filled with questions and fear and uncertainty and all those things. That's the power of good counsel. That's why one of our values is the power of transformational relationships because we know we can't live the life God wants us to live. We can't be the people that God wants us to be if we are not connected in vital transformational relationships. Good counsel encourages obedience. The Proverbs put it this way, the thoughts of the righteous are just, the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. And we come to those moments when when sometimes we have to evaluate who is speaking into my life. Who is speaking into my life, and what direction are they helping me to walk in or pointing me to walk in? You you know, we've joked before. Uh, The old saying is, don't take investment advice from somebody that's broke, right? I mean, don't do it. Why? Because they may sound real polished, but honestly, they don't know what they're talking about, right? I mean, their behavior tells you something about what they actually practice and believe. And in the same way, as we think about who am I allowing to speak into my life, look at their life. Look how they're walking. Look at their level of obedience to God. Do I have some people, listen, we're surrounded with a world that has kind of some wicked counsel. But do I have people who are speaking into my life, who are encouraging me to trust, who are encouraging me to obey, who are encouraging me in mean, paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Good counsel encourages obedience. That's why we want you to be connected in some of those transformational relationships in your life. The fifth lesson in obedience from Naaman's life is that obedience on our part opens the door to receive God's best. Obedience on our part opens the door to receive God's best. I want you to see what what takes place right after that. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. He was clean. In the end, he actually did what God, through the prophet, had commanded him to do. He actually took a step of obedience. Obedience can be defined as doing what God says, when God says to do it, how God says to do it, and trusting God with the rest. And trusting God with the rest. Now, I know sometimes definitions can be boring, but but let me lean into this one for just a few moments, if I might. Obedience can be defined as doing what God says. It is not not my opinion of what God says. It's not, not, let me me negotiate and see if I can kind of change that a little bit. What God says to do, when he says to do it, the timing really does matter. As you've heard us teach before, delayed obedience is disobedience obedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience, and sometimes we miss the window of opportunity. Sometimes we miss the opportunity that God is placing before us, not because we uh, not wanting to do what God wants to do, but we don't do it when God says to do it. But the how God says to do it is important too. It's not just what God says to do, but how does God say to do it? The how matters as much as the what matters. What do you do, and how do you do it when God says to do it. And then the last phrase, and trusting God with the rest. 
Please don't walk away from here mishearing what I'm saying. I am not going to tell you that if you walk in obedience, your life will always turn out the way that you want it to. I'm not going to say to you that if you will do what God says to do, it'll always turn up sunshine and roses here, all right? I'm not going to suggest to you from Scripture that if you do what God says, life's just going to get easier and easier and easier. No, 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 no. I don't know what God will do when you obey, but I know he'll bring his best to bear, even if that doesn't look like what you thought it was going to look like or what you wanted it to look like. But it will open the doorway to God's best. It's been said that huge doors move on tiny hinges. Huge doors of God's best in our life move, swing on the hinge of obedience. On the hinge of obedience. And there are some of us that are one step of obedience away from a door swinging open that'll pour open God's best in our life. But it hinges, it hinges on a step of obedience. And it ultimately rests on the character of God. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus taught, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It's not just hearing it. It's not just knowing it. It's not just studying. It's not even just even having the ability to sing about it or teach about it. But it's hearing it and keeping it. Hearing it and actually doing it. What I want you to understand is that behind every command of God is a promise. A command of God and a promise of God, they're always linked. It's kind of like two sides of the same coin. When there is a command of God, there's a promise. There's a promise of God's presence when you obey. There's a promise of God's provision when you obey. There's a promise of God's power when you obey. And those things become operative. They become real. They become alive in my life and yours when I obey. That huge door swings open on the tiny hinge of obedience. And sometimes as I've read this story through the years, I've wondered, what what, what would have happened? What would have happened if Naaman kind of did like some of us do, right? He, he maybe got in that river and he's still grumbling a little bit, right? It's just, I don't know. It's just, look at this water. It's just, we got much better rivers back home. And, oh, man, I'm making a fool of myself. And he goes down once, twice, three times, four times. And maybe after that fourth time, he's kind of looking. Nothing's happening. I knew this was a mistake. I knew this was dumb. I knew this was never going to work out. Why did I listen to that servant in the first place? I, I should be well on the road now. This is ridiculous. I'm out of here, right? Not only is delayed obedience disobedience, but partial obedience is disobedience. And some of us have started down a pathway of obedience, and it didn't work out as quickly or the way that we thought it was. And we stopped after the fourth or the fifth time. We stopped walking the pathway of obedience 
and we missed God's best. It was after the seventh time, seven times, doing what God says to do, when God says to do it, how God says to do it, and trusting him with the rest. It was that hinge of obedience that swung open the door of healing in Naaman's life. Can I just encourage and maybe challenge some of you here this morning? Some of you started to step in the river and you've gone down one, two, three, four, maybe even five or six times, but you can't see anything happening. It doesn't seem to be making a difference. And all those old fears and frustrations are starting to sneak back in. And what I'm just going to encourage you is to go all the way. Go all the way. Do everything that God told you to do, when he told you to do it, how he told you to do it, and trust him with all the rest because obedience on my part Obedience on your part opens the door to God's best. Now, I'm going to tell you, I, there's a part of me that sometimes is kind of like, you know, I think I might have edited Scripture a little bit differently. <laughs> sometimes I would think, yeah, this would have been a great time to end the story, Right? I mean, you know, I mean, Naaman's healed. He's going to go back. Praise God. Everybody's excited. You know, win. The end, right? But there's more to the story. There's more to the story. And that story tells us kind of the opposite. Whereas Naaman eventually chose God's way, there's another character in this chapter by the name of Gehazi. And Gehazi, unfortunately, models for us choosing our way. Choosing our way. Kind of to to link the two stories. Naaman's been healed. He comes back to Elisha, and he's so excited, and he's, uh, you know, he's just giving praise to God. And he's brought all this money, and he's brought all these clothes. And, I mean, you know, he wants to give it to Elisha. and, And sometimes that might be the right thing to do to receive some of that, but it wasn't the right time to do that. And Elisha knew that from God. And so he said, no, not taking any of the money, not taking any of the clothes. You know, go back, serve and worship God. And he even, Naaman arranges to take some dirt with him just to kind of remind him of of this great God who has healed him along the way. And then there's Gehazi, who's a servant of Elisha. And Gehazi kind of begins to process, wait, 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 do you know how much money he has with him? Do you know how much that could help us? Do you know how much good we could do with that? And besides, besides, you know, he, he probably got a lot of that by some of the raids on Israel anyway. I mean, my, we, we deserve that stuff, right? And so he's thinking, he's processing. And he decides, even though Elisha said this is God's way in this circumstance, he decides to go his way. And you see a progression that is a progression that every one of us can follow. The first progression is he thought. He thought. Skip down there in that fifth chapter to, to verse 20. As, as Naaman is kind of leaving, he's going home, he's taking everything with him. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, always good to throw God's name when you're disobeying, right? As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. When Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, all is well. My master has sent to me to say, there are just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. 
Now let's pause right there for just a moment. You see this progression. He's thinking, first of all, to himself. He's thinking, you know, Elisha didn't get this one right. He shouldn't have spared this guy. And that's where, that's where choosing our way always starts. We begin to think. We begin to reason to ourselves. Maybe we begin to talk to ourselves along the way. Maybe we get even counsel from somebody that says, hey, that, what God's asking you to do is not, doesn't make sense. It's not practical. It's not reasonable. You need to do what you know to do. And so we think. And then he, he pursued. He pursued in verse 21. So he has these thoughts, and that, that's kind of one level of wrestling there. But then he begins to, to follow his thoughts. He begins, he goes after Naaman. So now he's making an effort. He says, you know, I'm going to exert power. I'm going I'm to make this pursuit. And so he goes and tracks down Naaman. And as he tracks down Naaman and he catches up and Naaman says, what's going on? You find then he begins to lie. He lied. He lies, first of all, to himself. Then he begins, as we just saw, he's lying to Naaman. And as you continue to follow this, he's actually going to end up lying to Elisha, even as he foolishly tries to lie uh, to God. Uh, So let's just pick it up there in verse 23. And Naaman said to him, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid uh, laid them on uh, before Gehazi, I'm sorry, two of his servants and carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house and he sent the men away and they departed. He went in and stood before his master and Elisha said to him, where have you been Gehazi? And he said to him, did not my heart go when the, your servant went nowhere. It was his response. Then he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments and olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. He's lying. He lied to himself, and that's, that's where disobedience always begins. We lie. It's, it's based on a lie. Go back to the Garden of Eden. It was the whisper of a lie that led to the rebellion of Adam and Eve. We lie. We lie to ourselves. He fabricates a story. He lies to Naaman. He comes back and he tries to lie to Elisha, right? Now, I mean, if you've been around Elisha, if you've seen what God does, does in the life of Elisha, why would you lie to this man, right? Hey, hey, Gehazi, where you been? Nowhere. Nowhere. Sound like a little kid, right? I didn't do nothing. <laughs> I, didn't do, I, I didn't do it. I didn't go anywhere. Was I, didn't I not see where you went and what you did? He tried to lie, lie to Elisha. And ultimately, he's trying to lie to God. God, I'm going to do it my way, but it's not that big a deal. You won't really notice. It doesn't really matter. And not only did he lie... And as we see this kind of progression, he experienced. He experienced the consequences of his choices. And we always do. For For Naaman, he was cleansed of his leprosy. For Gehazi, that leprosy would now cling to him and his descendants because those little hinges of obedience matter. It opens up a doorway to God's best, but the hinge of disobedience also opens up the doorway to consequences that we really don't want to have anything to do with. When I choose my way instead of God's way, I'm choosing to reap some things that I probably don't want to reap. And please understand, consequences 
consequences are not always immediate, but they are inevitable. They're not always immediate. And that's why sometimes we can fool ourselves and lie to ourselves. You know, I did it my way. I chose my way and nothing bad happened. I didn't get caught. Just because the consequences aren't immediate doesn't mean they're not inevitable. The Bible talks about the law of sowing and reaping. You sow to the flesh, you're going to eventually reap from the flesh. You sow to the Spirit, you will eventually reap from the Spirit. Now, if you've done gardening, if you've done farming at all, you, you know that planting season and harvest season aren't the same thing. You understand that there's a time. But inevitably, what you plant will show up at harvest time. The consequences of my disobedience may not always be immediate. They may or may not be kind of what I thought they would be, but they are inevitable. They are inevitable. Sow to the Spirit, reap from the Spirit. Sow to the flesh, reap from the flesh. What you have in this chapter are two men with different decisions and ultimately different outcomes. You have one man who looks back with relief. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it was like to be Naaman from that day forward? Can you imagine that ride home? Can you imagine every time he he was bathing, as, as he looked at his skin, to say, oh, I am so glad. I am so glad that that servant said to me, don't go away angry. Take a chance. I'm so glad I didn't stop after the fourth or the fifth or the sixth time. I'm so glad I did what God said to do, when God said to do it, how God said to do it, and trusted him. I look back with such great relief in my life because I chose God's way even when it didn't make sense even when it seemed unreasonable and impractical. I'm so glad I chose God's way. One man looked back with relief. One man looked back with regret. What was it like to be Gehazi every time you took a bath? Was it almost a daily reminder of the regret of choosing his way instead of God's way. Look what I got for a little bit of coin and a couple of new suits. Look what I am reaping in my life because I chose my way instead of God's way. Two men, two decisions, two entirely different experiences. Why are we lifting up the value of radical obedience? Because we want you to experience God's best. We want you to be able to look back over the landscape of your life, not with regret, but with relief. Relief that I chose to follow God. When it made perfect sense to me, and when it didn't. When it was frightening, and when it wasn't. That I chose God's way. You know, life is ultimately kind of a series of countless decisions, isn't it? Researcher Sheena and Ivangar from Columbia has found that the average person makes about 70 decisions a day. 
That's 25,500 decisions a year, right? No wonder you're tired, right? I mean, man, that's a, that's a lot of decisions, right? And, and some of them are, are small, you know, but perhaps you almost feel like an inconsequential uh, decision. Some of them are huge. Some of them are huge. They're weighty. And we feel the, the pressure of those even at times. If you have 70 years of decision-making, you will have made 1,788,500 decisions in your life, right? Whoa. And in many, 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 many of those decisions, you're going to choose God's way or you're going to choose your way. The philosopher Albert Camus said, life is a sum of all your choices. You put together those 1,788,500 decisions and choices, and that's who you are. Your decisions not only shape what you experience, but they shape who you become. We're lifting up the value of radical obedience because we want you to be everything that God wants you to be. We want you to experience God's best in every facet and dimension of your life. And what we know is that the doorway to God's best always swings on the hinge of obedience, of obedience. And so as we draw this to a close, I'm just going to ask you, what is God asking you to do today? Maybe there's something that God's just popped off the pages of Scripture, and, and you know, you know exactly what it is that God's saying for you to do. Maybe it's that, that, that prompting of God's Spirit that just kind of keeps coming back again and again and again, and it keeps surfacing in your life. What is God asking you to do today? And, and to get as much clarity around that as you can. And then the second question is, how are you going to respond How are you going to respond? Are you going to respond by saying, God, I'm going to do it your way, or God, I've got a better plan. I've got a better idea. This is what makes sense to me. I'm going to do it my way. Because what I know is that my decisions and yours will shape the person you become and the life you experience. And you will come to the end of your journey, and you will have an opportunity to look back. And you'll either look back with relief because you did it God's way, or regret because you chose your way. Obedience is doing what God says to do, when God says to do it, how God says to do it, and trusting him with the rest. That's what it means to live with radical obedience. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Oh, Father. Thank you for the reality of Scripture. Thank you for the examples of men and women who have gone before us, who have, have chosen well, who have chosen your way, who, who have modeled for us what it means to walk in obedience to you. And, Father, I just pray that more and more and more that would be our story, more and more that would be our experience. And, Father, we just thank you also for the reality of Scripture that reminds us of what happens when we choose our way and, and the things that sometimes we invite into our lives when we do that and I said Lord I just I pray I pray Lord knowing that there's some folks in this room right here right now that are just perhaps at a point of decision at a point of choosing 
And Lord, I just pray. I pray that you would just speak to them through your word and your spirit. I pray, Father, that you would make it clear what it is that you're asking them to do. I pray, Lord, that you would just help them to be able to respond, empower them, and enable them to respond with a yes, Lord. I don't understand it. It doesn't all make sense, but I'm going to do it God's way. Lord, I want to pray very specifically knowing that there's some folks perhaps in this room right now who, who they, don't, they don't know Jesus Christ personally, the Savior and Lord. Father, that, that even in this moment, you're, you're, you're confronting them with the reality of sin and the only hope that is found in Christ Jesus. And Lord, somehow there's a part of them that it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that a man dying on a cross 2,000 years ago could change their past and their present and their future. But Father, I just pray today that they would choose your way. Today would be the day that they would place their faith and trust, not in what makes sense to them, but in the pathway that you've provided through Jesus Christ. Father, we've had one already earlier this morning standing in the waters of baptism. And there's some folks here, Father, that, that's, that's their next step of obedience. And I, I pray, Lord, that you would just direct them to that. There's some that, you just, that you just, you're just calling them, not, not to just kind of float out there, but to plant a flag, to, to dive deep, to, 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 to be a part of a fellowship that's seeking to unleash a movement of Christ-centered, spirit-empowered world changers. And Father, I pray that, that you would lead them here and just plant them here for your best, for your kingdom. Father, I, I pray knowing that there's some folks making some financial decisions and, and maybe something that was going to drive their accountant a little crazy, but Lord, it's what you're calling them to do, and I just pray that they would say yes to you. There's some that are making a relational decision, and Father, I pray that they would choose your way today and not theirs. Father, we've got this missions conference coming up in just a couple weeks, and Lord, you want to use that time to challenge and stretch, and, and maybe, Father, Father, even there's, a, there's, a, there's an individual, there's a family that you want to change the trajectory of their life out of this missions conference. And I pray, Lord, that they would just be wide open to you and that they would hear you and they would respond with a yes, Lord. Yes, I'm going to do it your way. And I'm just going to ask you just to sit before the Lord for just a moment or two more. And there's a series of questions in that box called making it personal. And I'm just going to encourage you to scan those for a moment now. But honestly, I'm just going to encourage you to take this with you. And maybe to spend some time with those questions over the next seven days. And just, just marinate in those questions a little bit. Allow God's Spirit to take those questions and kind of drive this deep to the heart of you about what He's asking you to do. Maybe the thoughts and fears you're struggling with. And what it is that, that you're going to lose in disobedience but might gain in obedience. And then just to get it crystal clear as to what it is that you're going to do in response to what he's asking you to do. In just a moment, we're going to close our time. with.